G'day, humans. It's a comfy couch convo today, where instead of having a huge, uncomfortable conversation with an intellect the size of Jupiter, I sit down with a friend of mine who may also have an intellect the size of a large, gaseous planet. I'm not saying they don't, but I'm just saying it's a forum in which we can explore all kinds of random ideas and dive down little rabbit holes that we mightn't normally explore if the episode had a particular theme. Today, one of my favourite humans, uh, I wish I could say she was one of my best friends. She's not. I'd like her to be. Jessie, can you be a best friend of mine? Okay, good. Uh, We'll do that. Put it in the diary. She uh, is a writer. She's a podcaster. She's the assistant head of content at Mamma Mia, which, if you're not Australian, is a uh, media empire in Australia. She co-hosts Mamma Mia Out Loud, which is a podcast. She hosts Mamma Mia's True Crime Conversations. She hosts Mamma Mia's Book Club Podcasts. Uh, she has written a book called Heartsick, which is uh, a narrative nonfiction book about heartbreak, which uh, we don't talk about, and I suppose we probably should have if I was being a courteous and generous host, which occasionally I'm not. Jessie is a wonderful, uh, a wonderful thinker. You'll hear her a couple of times coming up over the next uh, few months as she joins us on the comfy couch. Today, uh, we want to talk about about Twitter, about cancel culture, about Alison Roman, who apparently Jesse likes, about cultural appropriation, which apparently Jesse is rather partial to. Look, I'm not going to explain what Jesse likes. She can tell you herself. Please enjoy Jesse Stevens. It was a pre-made wrap and then it got toasted. Yeah. But then it had it lettuce. It got toasted. Yes. In the passive voice. You yes. You had nothing to do with the toasting. No. It was who delivered it? to me from the kind man who works in the cafe downstairs. Yeah. And I said, may I have that toasted? But I knew that the lettuce looked fresh and then it was going to go in the toaster and then the lettuce was going to be yucky. You know what's really yucky in a toaster, in a toasted sandwich? What? Avocado. It is. It's disgusting. It goes weird. It goes yes. bitter. Yes, into almost like some sort of bitter sauce. A bitter sauce, it's, a bitter avocado sauce. It's honestly, horrible. the things that we deal with. Uh, Jesse Stevens is here uh, on the comfy couch uh, this week, whining, really complaining. You might even say bitching about yes. uh, lettuce, about wilted lettuce on toasted wraps. Is that the worst thing that's going on in your life at the moment? Because that's pretty good. Um, yeah, it is. It's really, it's really upsetting, and it, that first mouthful can ruin a day. Mm. I'd say. Mm week. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> uh, let's talk about uh, let's talk about other sources of bitching, uh, namely social media. Uh, you know, it, let's expand the conversation from just uh, food related mm. lunch stuffs to the on, to online digital technology. Yep. Um, were you tempted to start bitching about your lettuce wrap on some social media platform? If I was one of those people who tweets my day-to-day life as though it is at all interesting, I'm yeah. sure I would have. And I would have tried to come up with a witty one-liner about it's as bad as a blah or something ridiculous and then I'd... I'm uh, glad you didn't because that wasn't a very witty one-liner. <laughs> that's why I'm it's not on Twitter. as bad as a blah. I can't come up with witty <laughs> one-liners and that's why I'm not popular on Twitter. So are you, are you upset that people are upset on Twitter? I hate Twitter so much. I spend so much time thinking about how much I hate it and oh. I allow myself 15 minutes in bed every night to hate scroll 
through people's complaints and feelings. You're following the wrong people, I think. Oh, I am. And I follow them intentionally. Are they people who are owning other people yes. on Twitter? Is it, That's the purpose of... And are they retweeting things and then, like, yes. sassing them? Exactly. Yeah. And they think they're really clever. And I watch these Twitter wars go on that to anyone else, sometimes I try and explain it to my mum or right. a friend. And I'm like, do you understand the... Like the Alison Roman thing, I think she was racist because she cooked a curry or something, and I try and explain it to someone. And <laughs> Wait, explain face... what that was, because not everyone is as online as <gasps> Well, we look, it's always the case that if you look closely, it is a little bit racist, but Alison Roman is a very famous food columnist in the US, and she has a famous curry. Right. And then she made all this money off the curry, and then these people got on and went, hang on. You're not Indian. You haven't consulted with people who cultural this is... Cultural appropriation. Exactly. This is cultural appropriation. Mm. And then other people were like, but I really like the curry. Right. And then they were like, well, white women profiting off black labour. It became about that. And I was watching it going... Wait, who's the... Where's the black labour? The black labour has come from years of like centuries, in fact. Right. Um, millennia. Of millennia. Of black women's work not being respected. But who's the black woman here? The black woman is the woman who has made a thousand curries and never made a cent off it. And then Alison Roman comes in with her white skin and her So the woman is hypothetical. Yes. She's an imaginary woman. It is all black women ever. Right. And Alison Roman- Imaginary ones or real ones? um, Look, both- but she is the amalgamation of all of those women and all of their hard years of labour. And Alison Roman has come in with her white skin and made and she's a curry. Stealing. She's, she's stealing from these millions of exactly. imaginary women. Yes. Theft is what it is. And exploitation. But um, wasn't there also something, for a start, It's I think it's hilarious to talk about cultural appropriation with countries as complicated as India, which yeah. have, have a huge success, actually, of appropriating everything around them. Exactly. Indian culture is a huge, wonderful, glorious, colourful mishmash of so many different things from so many different tribes within uh, South Asia uh, exactly. anyway. Including English. I mean, uh, like, Indian English is, an, is its own unique delight. When people... I, when people have occasionally, coming back to like people being assholes on Twitter, yeah. when people have occasionally uh, accused someone of, of cultural appropriation for some sort of Indian thing, I have sent them an article which just delights in how wonderfully mashed up Indian English is because there's a whole, essentially dialect, or you might even call it language, yeah. of... Um, of cobbled together English words in, I wish I had a list of it now, I'll probably drop it in after the fact, but wonderfully delightful kind of, kind of Indian turns of phrases that don't quite make sense in English, but almost make enough sense, which evolved during colonialism. I love and that. And they co-opted that, and that's not cultural appropriation. That's, I mean, it is, but it's fine. Yeah, exactly. And culture is really complicated, and the ways in which it comes together, and what's the difference between appropriation and appreciation, and it is a real mess. Didn't Alison Rome was? Didn't she say something though? Wasn't she? Did, wasn't she? A yes. Dick to, then there was the article. She said something about, about someone. Marie Kondo right. and um, the, Chrissy Teigen. Right. Why do I remember these things? This is not. And we didn't even plan to talk about no, this. No. You but wanted to talk course. about Twitter in the aggregate exactly. and social media in the in general. But I remember this so specifically. She had an article where she criticised Marie Kondo essentially for selling out. And I think she criticised Chrissy Teigen for the same reason. And she was like, I'm not going to sell out. 
which is a typical young person thing to say. Everyone under the age of 30 says, I'm not going to sell out. Yeah. You turn 30 and I'm you're like... I'm going to be true to my craft. Exactly. You look at all these people who have kind of become big corporate entities in yep. themselves. But the problem was that the two examples she picked were both women of colour. Exactly. Exactly. And it was an idealistic thing, perhaps rather than a racist thing. And then the curry thing came up again. And again, it's her versus all women of colour. And she was under this enormous pile on deals being pulled and you can argue that you know she can cry into her money but rich people have problems too and I think it would have been a tough week to be Alison Roman and it's like watching a soap opera on your phone and everyone's takes and they're so outlandish and you just think what are we really talking about here and a slip of the tongue like mm. a little bit of an error? Is she really... Yeah, but it's a slip of the tongue that reveals the deeper structural power uh, of the white patriarchy yes. and the white supremacist superstructure in which we all live, Jesse. Exactly. And the first person to say that will get the most retweets. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've got to be the first and you've got to say it with the biggest words. And then you're going to get lots of retweets. And I think that there are people whose full-time job has almost become... Bitching on Twitter. And well, being... there definitely are. Oh. And but how do they make money? They don't make money off that. They just have a lot of spare time. I guess they would otherwise be playing video games and now yes. they're owning people or pwning people. Do you pwn people anymore? Is that is that so seven years it's ago? It's so seven years ago. Right, okay. You're owning people, but I reckon the worst culprits. I work in media. You get the odd horrible tweet from some, you know, um, troll. That doesn't bother you. The thing that bothers you are your peers. And the media, there is this kind of, it's the people with a little bit of traction who are commentators that are the worst and that can be the most cutting because they've got real power. If they jump on someone, you can ruin a career or you yeah. can, you know, undermine a really young journalist or or whatever it is. And that's where it gets a bit scary. Well, yeah, I thought it was funny that you said that you don't have to care about it. I mean, that like Alison, it was probably a bad week for Alison Roman because like I don't actually care about Alison Roman. I didn't even know who she was <laughs> until this whole thing happened. But I think we shouldn't require ourselves to care about the individuals involved in order to care about the principle. Yes. Right, in the same way that I don't really care about whether or not like a neo-Nazi is happy but yes. I do actually care about neo-Nazis having the right to exist in a free, democratic, pluralistic society. Exactly. Without being jailed for their beliefs, regardless of how repugnant their beliefs might be. So, like, the principle of, like, not destroying a person's reputation and claiming that they are deeply racist because they cooked a curry and <laughs> were critical of people who happened to be a different race, but not, but they weren't critical because, in any way yeah. that, has to, that, that is racially uh, motivated... Yeah, that should worry us regardless of whether or not Alison is crying into her curry. That's the thing. And that's why I reckon I'm really, I'm not just scrolling Twitter. I'm like. You're scrolling life. I'm scrolling. You're scrolling humanity, Jeff. <laughs> exactly. To get a sense of this. And our own, you look at it and it's so transparent that it's someone proclaiming their own morality to thousands of people. And they're just going, if that costs me, you know, X or Y person, if this. If that person is destroyed because of it, oh, well, I've made a really funny tweet. And that commentary and that throwing crap on people all the time does have currency because it makes you a commentator, it makes you an advocate, it makes you a social, yeah, a social justice advocate or something. How much of it do you think is insincere? I reckon most of it, but I don't think the people doing it even know it's insincere. 
because there's such currency in it. There is real positive reinforcement and then people are like... Wait, is something still insincere if you don't know it's insincere? Doesn't that make it sincere? Well, I guess it's... Maybe it's asincere. Asincere. And the reason I think that is because how much are you doing, Mr. Tweeter, to support the plight of women of colour in India? Oh, nothing. Nothing. Absolutely. So how much do you truly care versus how much do you want to say that you care? And so people want to pretend like they're these virtuous, you know, um, they have these incredible values, but they throw things that are created, whether it's a TV show or a book or an article or works of art or whatever it is, when they themselves aren't creating anything because it's too terrifying. They're creating tweets. A lot of tweets. Yeah, a lot of tweets. tweets. And that's, I saw something the other week that was a study that someone had done, a very valid study, and someone came out and in a tweet completely tore it down, suggested it hadn't been peer-reviewed, made assumptions about the person's politics that were completely incorrect. And I thought that study would have taken years Mm. of work. And this person can click their fingers on a bad Monday morning and decide that their opinion is worth broadcasting about that. And that's a worry. I mean, people have always thought that, but up until now, they didn't have a platform in which they could be taken seriously. They just ranted in their living room at the TV. Exactly. And now they sort of have an equal footing with people who are actually authoritative. And And I think this is part of what what fuels conspiracy theories and stuff like that as well. Like the fact that we're all on the same plane. So that person who is just spouting their bullshit (laughs) against the peer-reviewed study looks superficially when you're looking at your Twitter feed like they have the same sort of status as the peer-reviewed study. And they don't. And I I guess that's exactly it, that there are just so many voices. But then it is the fault of the media as well in that Twitter tweets themselves have become the news story. So, for example, someone tweets a criticism and then someone tweets another and then the news story is that two women are going at each other or or whatever it is. And that has validated, in fact, having your tweet embedded in a news.com article is also a sign of status. Mm. So then you feel like you're informing the news and your perception... I just got a tweet published in an American publication. Oh, was it a good one? It was a good one. It was uh, the magazine of uh, reason.com. Yeah. It's a big magazine over there for uh, libertarians and uh, rational uh, thinkers and so on. And it, I didn't, it's only because I, I had a Google alert set up on my, yeah. for my name. Of course you did. Apparently you have to do. <laughs> this is something that was news to me. I didn't know that I could be alerted every time someone published an article with my name in it. And then it popped up. I was like, why is an American publication writing about me? And it was because I'd, I'd, but shamefully i had actually done this essentially in which i'd owned a cnn reporter for getting vaccine uh statistics wrong oh and it was i was trying to explain i mean i was trying to be constructive yep. they they had said that if vaccines are not, they were they were talking about the risk of people flying over summer on planes and they were saying the vaccines are only 90% effective which means that if a million people fly then 100,000 could still catch coronavirus Mm. Which is not true. No, that's the ninety percent. How... And so I, I did a little Twitter thread just saying ninety percent effective doesn't mean that ninety percent of vaccinated people are uh, immunized and ten percent aren't. What it means yes. is that of the people who would otherwise have gotten sick from COVID, 
uh, or have, have gotten symptomatic COVID, I should say, to be more precise, 90% fewer of that number will get it if, you, if, they, if the cohort's been vaccinated. In other words, if a million people were flying unvaccinated and almost nobody was getting it, then the 90% applies to the almost nobody, not to the million. Yes, exactly you know I mean? right. And that's genuinely really helpful. And it sounds like well, what you thank did you. I was there... trying to be helpful. I'm quite proud of myself, yeah. even though that explanation that I just gave was incomprehensible. No, and I apologise I... to the listener. Completely get it. Right. And what you played was the idea, not the person. Yeah. Did you I call did him call... an idiot? No, I called the person a cunt. Yeah. But, I... <laughs> but other than that, uh, it was the idea. <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, yeah, it was just the idea. I didn't even, I didn't even name check. I didn't even at them. Yes, because it was just like, oh, okay, there's a factual inaccuracy. Allow me to correct it. I've had this with my own work. I've had people comment, message, tweet, and gone, actually, this, because maths isn't my strong point, and I right. did something once that was statistically inaccurate and it was important, and I got someone say, actually, that's wrong, amended the article, said thank you. That stuff is a really helpful – that's what Twitter is great for, is is holding people to account. I think that it's when it becomes about – you're a racist or you're sexist or you're an anti-vaxxer or whatever because you got that wrong, that's when you start assuming someone's politics and it gets What if they actually are racist or sexist? Well, I'm not sure that throwing those terms around when you know very little about someone is is useful because what we're going to end up doing is the terms themselves are going to lose all meaning. And when someone calls you a racist, you're not going to bristle. And well, I mean, they already have sort of yeah, lost all meaning, haven't they? In exactly. This, and even, like, even in the admission of the people who are most aggressive about throwing them around. I mean, people who, uh, the, the very same people who are insisting that racism is uh, is endemic and is a scourge and that white supremacy is everywhere are the ones who are redefining racism to mean just existing in a yes. white supremacist society makes you racist, in which case... Well, We're all racist. No one's racist. Yeah, well, then it's sort of not that bad, isn't it? Yes. And you've devalued the term... You've devalued what should be the worst term, the worst thing to be. Apart from, like, a genocidal uh, murderer, being racist should be about as bad a, a thing as you can be. And exactly. now if we're all it, then it's not... It turns out it wasn't so bad after all. And there's no nuance involved in in that. And someone can assume your intent if it wasn't your intent. And I, I, it's the same with, you know, a misogynist. A misogynist hates women. Mm. That's a really big call. Um, transphobic. Uh, there's something that you know, most of us would be horrified to be called, but it means that we can't have these nuanced, interesting discussions. There are some certain, you know, facts or interesting things that come out that you want to discuss, but even going there, talking to some people, even talking about blood clots makes you an anti-vaxxer. Yeah. And you're not an anti-vaxxer. You're trying to balance facts and politics and if you let your politics be the prism by which you see the world then you're not being very objective or impartial which is a worry yeah i mean that's true so true about vaccines it's like when trump came out in favor of hydroxychloroquine this you know treatment uh, quote unquote for uh, covid uh, uh, thereafter you could never say anything positive about hydroxychloroquine, yeah. even when there was. It seemed it turned out not to be true, but it seemed for a while that there was there was some utility therapeutically in using hydroxychloroquine. In but to to say so was to side with Trump and to put yourself on that side of the political aisle, uh, which was very silly. Phobic's funny. 
you just mentioned transphobic and like transphobic and like homophobic. Why are there some things that we just decided were phobias and Rather others than that isms. were well, yeah, or like I mean, anti anti Semitic. Yeah, you're just anti Semitic. You're like you're a Jew hater. You're yes, anti. You're anti the Jews. Shouldn't we just say anti homo? Instead of homophobic, you know why? Or anti-trans? Because I reckon that language. See, I think we should cancel each other for even using the word homophobic because it is probably steeped in homophobia, which is that for a while people believed it was. It's like the gay panic defense. Like for a while, people actually thought that a fear of someone who was gay was somewhat legitimate. You know, and that is in living memory. In a way that perhaps other language isn't like, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, I see. Do you know but what isn't I mean? It also, isn't it also kind of a dick move to to say that anyone who who disapproves of homosexuality, even if it's for for their religious re- reasons, is secretly terrified of gays? Isn't that isn't it a way of taking what you're p- talking about, which is the true fact yeah. that for a long time people have feared gay people as being predators or as being, you know, someone who's going to try to hit on them or something. And then to conflate that as being the only reason why a person might object to gayness. And as though it's a pathological fear, like like being afraid of a spider. Like that's a really strange way of phrasing it. Well, that's right. And I don't think it's true. Like I don't think that people who are worried about uh, you know, about their, their their child becoming turning out to be gay or their child turning out to be trans. I don't think the, the only explanation why they might be worried is because they're afraid of gay people and trans people. Yeah, there's nuances within that. They might just they might just not like it. Or they might be yeah. deeply religious or they might be, you know, fundamentalist Muslims or whatever. They, that doesn't mean they have to be scared of it. I think yeah. we need new words, Jesse. I think we do. I, I might don't even like anti Semitic. Now that I think about it, just call them Jew haters. Like that's good. It's punchy. Yeah. You know? It's also he's a, really don't say he's an anti Semite, say he's a Jew hater. Anti Semitic is really hard to spell because there's an <laughs> I where there should be an E, which <laughs> just right. makes things really hard. Also the Semites are all the people of that of that neck of the woods. So the Arabs are Semites as well. That's so true. We need to change that. Mm. I think we've got to really look at the definition of misogyny as well. I think we're throwing that around a little bit much. Now I hear people talking about misandry. Oh, yes. Which doesn't work for me because the syllables don't line up properly. I don't know where to put the emphasis. And it doesn't ring, it doesn't sound very nice in my mind, which is probably because uh, we don't use it very often because it doesn't really exist. Um, (laughs) But it's, I never know whether to say misandry, 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 mis, misand, like it doesn't Well, it does work. exist. Some women must hate men. Doesn't it just mean hating men, a hatred of men? Oh. I know women who hate men. I know women who hate men. That is, that is very, it, very true, actually. I think it's actually. the opposite of misogyny, misandry. I was thinking it more as like a cultural structure, but you're exactly right. It's individual. It's the women who are saying, leave yeah, your husbands, well, all men are evil. Yeah, well, that's the silly thing about, yeah, exactly. I mean, the people who are the quickest to throw around a word like misogynist are yes. probably the likeliest to be misandrists. Exactly, which is also just as unhelpful. And that, yeah, that is, and I see that a lot, and yet that seems to be more culturally um, excusable, even like threats of violence or like oh, yeah. suggestions. Kill all men. Kill all men. A very popular Australian commentator who I won't name uh, yes. had a, you know, a whole Twitter thread about killing men. Exactly. And I'm like, that is, I 
that is not how I see feminism. That is not how I see feminism was always meant to be about liberating both genders. And in fact, this is what gets me and you're not really meant to say this, but gender at the same time that we're trying to erase gender and make all of it disappear, we've never been more obsessed with it. And it really is confusing me because even, and I obviously agree with, you know, pronouns and and everything like that, but there are moments where you go, so are we doing away with gender, which is what feminism and the Jermaine Greers were just basically like, it's a structure, it prisons, it imprisons men as much as it does women. And I was all for that. I was like, yeah, boys can wear blue. But now it's like we've never been more obsessed with classifying people, which also doesn't work. And so if you hate all white men, then in fact, you're doing the exact thing that you didn't want men to do to you, which is a real paradox. Yes, it is a paradox. And I, I, I think, I feel a bit sorry for people who are trying to uh, be activists in the trans community specifically because the community has so many subsectors mm-hmm. that all actually disagree with each other and Same sort with of disagree with that's right mm. and sort of disagree with feminism in yeah. some ways because if you're non-binary then you don't believe in gender yes. right you don't you think it's all just sort of made up and who cares but if you're a binary trans woman you believe deeply in the reality of gender exactly. and you believe that you were born into the wrong body. And that. so how does that mesh with your non-binary quote unquote allies? And I was actually interviewing a, um, a wonderful trans woman who's a Fijian Australian uh, and she, she transitioned like 30 years ago when it was a lot more difficult than it is today. And she, I could sense a certain terseness and like abruptness in her manner when I started talking about like gender fluidity and non-binary and all this stuff. Cause I feel, I feel like she feels, well, I've like fought a really, really long, yeah. hard battle to be a woman, to be a woman. Now, yes. don't tell me that that category doesn't exist. Uh, and similarly with feminism, like you mentioned Jermaine Greer. I mean, part of that era of, was it second wave feminism, I guess, in the 1960s? I that, think so, yeah. Uh, you know, her and Camille Paglia and all those types of people was like, there is something intrinsic about the experience of growing up as a girl in modern patriarchal societies yes. that is a source of uh, formative experiences and a source of solidarity for all women and you to now be re- to, to now be that. required to, to to pretend that that's not true <laughs> you know because you might offend uh trans women because they didn't have the experience of growing up as a woman is a, a little bit of a slap in the face maybe to the second wave feminists exactly. and, to, and to girls. And then if you're a trans person, you can get on Twitter and tweet something that is true to you, that is offensive to the trans community and then be cancelled by the trans community. And it's like... Oh, yeah. So if you don't get an opinion, and I see the same thing with um, with the you know community around people with disabilities. And I was speaking to someone recently who said... There's no such thing as a disability community and there's no such thing as a trans community Mm. because there are so many different individuals within it. With disability, you have one advocate who is speaking, and this isn't their fault, this is, you know, the way culture works, but on behalf of deaf people and blind people and intellectually disabled people and physically disabled people, they are such different experiences that you can't decide how everyone in that community must think and then police it. And that's what you see is that policing of thought and conversation 
regardless of identity and never mind if you don't even belong to that identity and you have an opinion because yeah. then you're silenced well, immediately. That, I mean, in some ways it's easier for people to be critical of people like us who are cis people talking about the trans community because then they can just say, well, you don't have any standing yes. to talk about this, which I think is actually a bullshit move anyway because we all ha- – it's like when people say that – you know, I once got into a huge online spat talking about people being nasty online and making mountains out of molehills when I was on Joe Rogan's podcast and he... You were on Joe Rogan's podcast? Oh, six times, baby. <gasps> mm. I know what I'm doing tonight. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, and he was saying... This was actually the last time that I went on, uh, so it may, maybe we had a falling out or something, but he was saying that... Um, you know, we shouldn't talk about abortion because that's a women's women's uh, health issue. And blah. and I was like, well, hang on, hang on. To the people who, and I'm pro-choice, but to the people who think that abortion is murder, it's not just a women's health issue. Because exactly. Because the whole question, uh, the whole question is whether or not uh, a, a a baby in a mummy's tummy has any standing at all, or any rights, or any deserves any of our concern, or is it just an appendage like a piece of of flesh? If it has, even if it has a brain and neural activity and yeah. a heart that's pumping and stuff like that, like that's the question. You don't just dodge that by saying it's a women's health issue. And he was like, "Yeah, but you're never, you don't stand the risk of ever being pregnant, so you don't have a right to talk about it." And I was like, "That's not actually true. We're all in a quorum of society here. We are all in the." you know, in the demos. Yeah. We're, we're all part of constructing what kind of moral universe we want to live in. And therefore we all have standing to talk about whether or not we think that, you know, uh, eight-month-old babies can be killed in the womb or whether two-month-old babies could be killed in the womb or whether indeed after birth maybe infants should, maybe there should be, some philosophers say there should be a three-month period yeah, in which you can... Well- you can terminate the life of a of a, a newborn infant. These are all big questions, and just to say that because they don't apply to you, you don't have standing to talk about them, I think misses the point of what it means to be a citizen and what it means to be a citizen in a you know in a an advanced democracy where everyone has their say. And it's the same with the trans question. Like we can be accused of not having any standing, and obviously our conversations should always be done with care and uh, sympathy yes. and empathy and and love. But it doesn't mean that we have to just accept anything that a spokesperson from that community says we should accept, especially when people within that community themselves disagree yes. about it. And they are kicking their own people. I mean, like Buck Angel. Do you know Buck Angel, a porn star? He, um, yes. He, I know that name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I've interviewed him as well, and he's a complete... Like, he does not buy into any... I mean, he's been trans for, you know, 40 years or something, and he doesn't buy into the hysteria at the moment, and Caitlyn Jenner doesn't either, and they are persona non grata. Now, Dan Savage is the latest person to be kicked out of the LGBTQI club because he said something in support of Jesse Single, who had written about detransitioners. It's like, it's crazy. It's like a purge. And you can't ask questions. And... I suppose then and then this is the question even with I see it with fiction and with writing and characters and what you can and can't write. But I have a friend who's a uh, PhD researcher and has studied her whole, you know, career now on deafness. And that's because both her grandparents were deaf and fascinating story. And she did an incredible journal article about um, the deaf community and she submitted it to a journal and the journal said, thank you very much. We do not accept articles from people who are not themselves deaf. This is PhD academic level research done by an academy. Years and years of data and statistics and interviews and everything in it. 
And that really isn't fair on communities themselves, that just because you're a person who happens to be deaf, you need to dedicate your life to advocacy. And I think it's the same with lots of different, I'm not a refugee, but I can look at the refugee plight and go, that's something I'd like to advocate on behalf of, or, you know, have a cousin with an intellectual disability. And I'm like, that's something I care about. He can't speak about it because Mm. he doesn't have the language. I do. And then I do. And there is criticism because I'm not someone with a disability. And you just don't know how these discussions are ever going to get anywhere if we can't respectfully disagree for starters and then start getting really personal about you and your politics and, you know, what I secretly think as, I mean, as also, a person. It's so tokenistic to say that you have to wheel out the deaf person yes. to, like, you know, to make a good a good point. Like you've you've already got the the study done. You've got all of the data collected. You like you've written it up and it's been peer reviewed. But in order to in order to get it read, we've got to bring in a tokenistic deaf person yes. to hand it over. Like there's some some puppet. Is there anything more objectifying? Yeah. And and um to to suggest that someone should change their subjectivity or that that somehow of course it influences your perspective on things, but it's objectifying and it's tokenistic to people who are, who you know might be deaf or disabled or I whatever. Mean, it's also an interesting question about who is really the moral, the most moral actor in advocacy. Because when you said like, you know, you suppose you want to advocate on behalf of refugees or on behalf of people who are living with disabilities who can't advocate on behalf of themselves, I mean that would be the the most moral thing to do to advocate for something where you have no personal possibility of gaining yes but then in a strange way like it's it's inverted to say that you shouldn't be part of the struggle because only people who are going to benefit from the from progress in the struggle should be part of it because if you're talking purely ethically well of course they're going to want to struggle against it because they're they're the ones who benefit if they exactly like I mean, it's a bit weird, but you and know, then it's you like, get called. Of course, a... a gay person is going to want to favor, favor gay rights, <laughs> but like, what what really matters is when the non-gay person favors gay rights. Exactly, and then you get called a white savior or a you're hijacking someone else's political cause. You're taking. I've heard this one a lot. You're taking up the spot of someone. Like, for example, if you wanted to talk, I was asked once a question about the national anthem and the inclusion of um, we are. Uh, they changed the word young, was it? Um, and then... Right. Uh, and it was about In basically... In Australia, the national anthem goes, we are, we are young and free. And the point was quite rightly made. We're one of the... We're, we're the oldest continent yes. geologically and we have the oldest continuous civilization exactly. in the world in the form of uh, Native Australians. And in the context of another conversation, I was asked about that and I explained that and I said, yeah, sounds like a really good first step lot more to do and from what I've you know very much listened to the uh, you know Australian Indigenous community on what they say and I'm taking their lead and this is what they've asked for and more of that basically and I got stand down Jesse ridiculed because I was taking their spot exactly I was taking the microphone and I thought should I have said I'm not going to comment as a white person but then am I victimizing myself there wasn't a, a right way to answer that question. And that becomes really difficult because if everyone also speaks on their own issues, votes on their own issues, you end up with bloody Trump's America. You end Mm. up with some guy who only has interests in the completely uh, sort of 
average man rather well, I mean, or than... Or worse still, you end up with a tribal... We end up with like a civil war. Yes. <laughs> you end up like with Rwanda or Somalia. Exactly. Where you have every single clan uh, in acting in its own interest and trying to seize as much power as, as possible. Um, there's a lovely quote that uh, a recent guest on the show, John Opdyke, reminded me of from James Baldwin, the, the great um, African-American writer and activist, which was about how, like, an oppressive system doesn't just corrode the experience of the people it's oppressing. It, mm. it, it corrodes the humanity of everybody who's engaged in it, which I think is worth remembering when we talk about who's got standing and who doesn't have standing to agitate on behalf of issues. Like, the fact that Australia has never had a real reckoning with the genocide of its First Nations is something that actually matters to you as an Australian citizen as well. Yeah. Like you're complicit in this, and if you want to fix it, then trying to fix that is uh, is something that does land on our shoulders. So I don't quite understand why we have to feel embarrassed about attempting yeah, wanting to do to the right thing. advocate. And it's like they say the a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and I think you can just believe in justice and apply that and believe in equality and apply that to lots of different issues and, and politics. And I would hope that you recognise something like that and you march on the streets and you vote in a certain way. Um, and it's not you trying to hijack, it's trying to, you know, be an ally. And then, you, uh, yeah, it's, it's really hard. So are we going to fix uh, bitching on Twitter? Have we fixed <sighs> bitching on Twitter? Look... I, as the perfect person, the way that I deal with it is that I don't tweet, I just watch and bitch in real life. So I will scroll and I'll see someone going someone else trying to be clever and then I'll screenshot it and send it to my twin sister and we'll go, (laughs) I hate Twitter. And she'll say, I hate Twitter too. Did you see this one? And we'll go back and forward late late at night. But I don't need any of my horrible thoughts. Maybe you shouldn't be on Twitter at all. Oh, what Have a silly idea. Have you considered not looking at Twitter? It's, it is like scratching an itch. It yeah. is just, it is my... It's addictive. Yes, Do and I'm... Do you use Instagram or any of those ones? Yeah, but Instagram's a happy place compared to Twitter. Yeah, but it's more vain. It is. It is more vain. I suppose I, I feel a little bit more um, immune to that. That doesn't upset me so much. Whereas... Right. Twitter, I just feel like I'm watching from a distance humanity eat itself. Yeah. Twitter is infuriating and enraging. And And Instagram is just, uh, I find Instagram a bit depressing. Yeah, it is a little bit depressing. (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) Jesse. Thank you. Thank you.